Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski coming at you with a quick bonus episode before the next official director-centric episode is released towards the end of the month. Probably very late in the month, if not uh, early-ish February. I wanted to let you know that a cool thing will be happening this summer for the show. Uh, I don't want to say what it is yet, but you'll you'll know about it in the next few months. Uh, I'm excited to talk about a lot of things. Uh, you should be gearing up for February's annual retrospective spectacular in which Colin Suter, Eric Childress, and myself will be going back 30 years to talk about the films of 1992. So, uh, yeah, do some rewatches and... Uh, let me know if you have any thoughts on the films of 1992. Maybe we could read uh, some quick emails if you want to send them my way, uh, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a new website in the works over at directorsclubpodcast.com. I'm going to be posting a new release review every week that you can only find there. Um, it'll likely be in audio form. Sometimes I'll write about it. It sort of just depends on how I'm feeling. But, uh, yeah, I sort of got to keep up with new releases and, you know, watch something, even if it's just on streaming, you know, there's got to be a lot of interesting things out there every week. Even if I just have to like, oh yeah, I'll just watch something random on Hulu or Shudder or one of those. There'll be exciting new bonus content to come over at patreon.com slash directors club. This includes Bill Ackerman and myself talking about our other favorite 50 films, since last year's 10-year anniversary podcast uh, on our top 50 favorite films was such a huge hit, my goodness, uh, we still have 50 more we'd like to talk about, making it a complete list of 100 films. So that's going to come out uh, mid-February-ish, around there. And then the retrospective with Colin and Eric will be out later that month in late February. So there's a lot to come. I'm going to do my best to include some more content on Patreon, but now is the time for me to announce the four winners of the Blu-ray contest from the uh, last episode where we talked about our favorite films of 2021. I'm so grateful for your emails and kind words. Over uh, 55 entries we got, lots of emails. Uh, I'm going to reply to all of them <laughs> because I'm grateful, truly. And uh, I did the random number generator thing. Basically, I just... Uh, you know, did the did, clicked on this random number generator th through Google and uh, whatever number corresponded to the email that was sent, I just went with that and you know made it as random as possible. So here we go. Congratulations to the following: Armando Vanegas. I believe that's how you say it. I'm sorry if that's wrong, but um, he had a favorite film. And it was Licorice Pizza. Mm, 
Very good. All right. Congratulations, Armando. You won. Another lucky winner is Dalton Smith, whose favorite film of 2021 was The Card Counter with Oscar Isaac. Yes. Dark film that I'll revisit eventually. Uh, William Stevens also won, and his favorite film was Titan. 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 I'll eventually figure out how to pronounce it. And last but not least, Howard Bilecki, who chose Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar for his number one. Very impressive. Wonderful choice. A delightful film. Very funny. So congratulations, Armando, Dalton, William, and Howard. You all won a Blu-ray as well as something else that will be accompanying that Blu-ray. Yes, it's another movie. Uh, So you'll be expecting those in about a week or so. Uh, And thank you to everybody who entered. I really appreciate it. That was a nice turnout. I mean, 55 entries. Woo-wee! We're going to do it again, definitely, uh, next year when we do our year-end episode because, wow, that's... You guys love it. (laughs) I can tell. And I'm so grateful. You have no idea. It's always a challenge to, um, you know, put things together because it's, it's time consuming and I have a day job and I try to run a podcast network and, uh, you know, I have kind of a social life somewhat. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot to really keep up with, you know, sometimes my health has been weird and acting up, taking a trip to a doctor soon and see what's going on, but hopefully it can all be managed. Hopefully I can exercise more, all that good stuff, you know, it's the new year. you got to have resolutions and all that crap. But uh, as always, you're welcome to send any thoughts or ideas to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And there will be more to come over on Patreon and at the website within the year. So uh, try and stay active. I know it's not easy. I'm sure you listen to a lot of shows. But say, hey, you know, I don't mind. Find me on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore Lazkowski now. L-A-C-Z-K-O-W-S-K-I. Well, okay, in addition to those exciting new changes and the Jane Campion episode and the yearly retrospective in late February, I wanted to impart a little collage regarding the movie that changed my life. I think a lot of you probably know what that is by now, uh, if you've listened to any bonus content in the past, particularly my interviews with director and writer Alan Moyle and actor Samantha Mathis. Wow! Yeah, I can't believe those interviews happened because uh, the film that changed my life would happen to be Pump Up the Volume from 1990, starring Christian Slater. A film that not only kind of shown me that, hey, I'm not alone in suffering with depression and introversion and shyness and just being, you know, kind of weird, <laughs> but it introduced me to like rebellious music. <laughs> Uh, and helped me get in touch with my own voice and allowed me to get creative. I, I mean, I, I sort of treasure that film as, uh, hmm. you know, I don't, I don't want to get too dark, but hey, let's just admit it. I, you know, attempted suicide once and didn't think I was going to do it again, but I thought about it. And then I saw Pump Up the Volume and I said, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so there you go. I'm still alive. potentially because of a movie, uh, but also because uh, it showed me what it means to like get in front of a microphone and speak my thoughts, which is also another reason why this bonus episode is uh, guest free kind of makes sense when you think about it. 
Uh, and I, I know I've talked about this movie in a lot of different ways and maybe it won't be as interesting to sort of dive back because you know how I feel about this movie and you know, you may have seen it. I don't think it's available on streaming anywhere, which is very unfortunate, but, uh, there is a Blu-ray, very bare bones Blu-ray. Uh, I still think they need to re-release the soundtrack. I still think a lot needs to happen with that film. And it's another reason why I want to get back in touch with Alan Moyle if I can. You know, it's one of those things where I'm like, I, I know I can just maybe try calling him again, but he probably won't even remember me. That interview was a long time ago now. Um, but we'll see. I, I did try to call once and and didn't get like, all I got, yeah, it just kept ringing. So I was like, huh, no voicemail? No answering machine? What's going on? But it's possible he's changed numbers. I don't want to pester, you know? It's like one of those things where I don't want to overstay my welcome. But I also want to get in touch and, you know, talk about why, why there should be a screening. We should, there should, even if it's, even if it means flying all the way out to LA, there needs to be a screening of Pump Up the Volume. Maybe in 35, maybe at the New Beverly. I don't know. That's what I'm envisioning. I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about hosting a Q&A with Alan there, or at the very least, just showing the movie. Because, again, I may not, be, may not have actually survived if I hadn't seen that film. And I talk about that with Alan. I'm going to include a couple of clips from other interviews here. You know, there's just a lot to say that I don't want to just do monologue style because that would probably get a little dull to listen to after a while. I mean, some people get away with it. I know some people even probably have podcasts where they do just talk into a microphone for half hour to 45 minutes or whatever. But, um, heck look at, look at Mark Marin, right? <laughs> he is kind of like hard Harry. So, uh, you know, it's, it's weird. Like, Within the past year, I've just been going through more hard times, and anytime I'm going through hard times, I think about Pump Up the Volume, um, probably because it's just comforting and knowing that you know the, the power of a film, the power of a story, the power of seeing a character that's a lot like me really helped. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't go to the extent that he did and create this uh cult <laughs> nah, that's not the right word a following he created a following with his radio show in a way that was kind of a uh, uh endearing especially for teenagers i mean anyone in my age range that saw that film at a vulnerable time when they were going through high school and you know all those all that awkwardness there is definitely something there there was just it just tapped into something in a way that i'm sure rebel without a cause did but you know, uh, you know, maybe if the stars align, I'll get to interview Hard Harry himself. We'll see. Fingers crossed. That's still kind of a goal. Um, you know, but I, I've often talked about how Pump the Volume is a precursor to podcasting. <laughs> you know, now everyone with a Twitter feed probably has a podcast of their own, which, of course, can be, like anything, a blessing or a curse. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, a lot of great movie podcasts out there that's hard to even find the time to listen to them all because they're all churning out amazing content. I have a ridiculous subscription list of shows that I can barely keep up with lately, and that's just because I've been doing more. But, you know, I'll be getting some help from a fan and a friend in terms of Directors Club soon enough. You'll hear all about that probably around May. 
But um, I don't know. This this episode is just an excuse to put together some memories associated with the film, including a podcast that I hope is still available to download out there somewhere. Uh, but if not, I'm including it within this episode. Uh, future dad, congrats. Uh, <laughs> congrats are in order to this all-around terrific guy named Corey Pierce. He was on um, the David Wayne episode, and we, we just have a lot in common in terms of our comedic uh, sensibilities. And, uh, you know, he once briefly, sadly, briefly hosted a show called The Soundtrack of Your Life. And I think it started about eight years ago. Uh, and, and for that, I extensively discussed my love of Pump Up the Volume and, of course, the music, because it's kind of a show about soundtracks. I think there's only like 15 episodes or so, but it's well worth your time. I'll link to it in the show notes. I'm sure it's available maybe um, if Row3.com is still up. But this is also just to prime you for the possibility of bonus content that could include music discussion in the future, since that will happen again. There will be another music video episode with Heather Drain, that finally, and, you know, from now on, instead of getting music-related content through Voices and Visions, it's going to be here, um, or it's going to at least be on directorsclubpodcast.com. I do another yearly retrospective on the year in music with Dan Solomon uh, and Jason Simpson, my, my two friends from high school that uh, mean a lot to me, that are responsible for me discovering a lot of great music, to be honest. Uh, but those bonus episodes are now only going to be on the Director's Club feed because Voices and Visions is no longer going to be a thing. It's all going to be here. And old episodes and interviews I've done will be linked just a lot of archiving to do. That's kind of <laughs> the next few months is me just trying to create links and make sure they don't go away. Uh, Cause yeah, well, I won't talk about that. Obviously, you know, just being me, being a musician, a podcaster and someone who found socializing to be difficult. Uh, you know, pump of the volume just really resonated with me and I wanted to put together this sort of, um, a plethora of different clips and uh, sound bites, but more importantly, there just this extended episode I did with Corey for the soundtrack of your life about uh, the soundtrack and the film itself. Pump up the volume! So stay tuned. There's some good stuff coming here. I hope you stick around, and thank you so much for downloading and for supporting the show. Uh, especially since it's 11 years now this podcast has been going on. I still can't believe it. But uh, yeah, lots of good things to come, as I said. And uh, yeah, here's some more good stuff regarding the film that changed my life from 1990. Alan Moyles, Pump Up the Volume. It's time. It begins with us. Not with politicians, the experts, or the teachers, but with us. With you and with me ones who need it most i believe with everything that's in me the whole world is longing for healing even the even the trees the earth itself are crying out for it you can hear it everywhere it's the same kind of healing i desperately needed and finally feel has begun with you If it be your will 
I speak no more And my voice be still As it was before And when I heard the premise, I begged my mom to take me to it since it was rated R and, you know, of course, I was 12 years old. So we saw it. And as I'm watching this movie, my sadness completely lifted. It was cathartic. It was the first movie experience I ever had that felt like (laughs) therapy for me. (laughs) And, you know... it was a way for me to finally cope with my demons because Hard Harry was saying all the things that was in my heart and on my mind, and I couldn't communicate the way he could in front of a microphone. But in some weird, uncanny way, Hard Harry was the version of myself I wanted to be, a great communicator, um, someone who could just freely express himself and all his frustrations and anxieties and depression and all that. Um, but I was very much like how he is um, in, in, in front of people and in class and in school. You know, I was very introverted. Um, but at the same time, cut to many, many, many years later, man, and I started podcasting. So really, Pump Up the Volume not only saved my life, literally, because who knows if I hadn't seen it, I might have done it again. I'm not saying that I would have, but it's very possible. I just felt like if a movie can have this kind of impact on my life, then there's hope. Um, and, if the, and if a character can sort of express what I'm trying to express, then I'm not alone, after all. Mm-hmm. So this movie really, it changed my life. It turned me into mm-hmm. the person that I am today. So Mr. Alan Moyle, writer-director of one of my all-time favorite movies, thank you from the bottom mm-hmm. of my heart. It means the world to me. So. Wow, I feel like crying right now. It's so it's so beautiful that uh, that that movie reached a person as deeply as uh, as that. Wow, it's a, this is the first time I've ever heard. Uh, I've heard people say I loved your movie, but I've never <laughs> heard that before, Jim. Thank you very much. Oh sure. And this oh, and that and that speech comes at a time where I'm uh, I'm a little bit depressed mm. about my uh, future, my world. I'm uh, I'm in transition. But it's still hard for me not to cry when Malcolm well, Kaiser when Malcolm Malcolm Kaiser says yeah. I'm all I'm all alone. That moment. Yeah. I think that was probably yeah. the moment when I first saw it too that made me go, "Man, that's that's how I feel, mm. and I got to that dark place. Mm. And they wanted us to cut that scene out. Can you oh believe it? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, it's it's reminiscent, too, like, of a movie called Permanent Record. Did you see Permanent Record with... No, Cameron's? tell me. Yeah, this is an older film. I would say it's from 1987. I know... I, I forgot who wrote and directed it, but it's also one of those hard-to-find movies, but at the same time, it is about... Uh, a teenage suicide and how it affects an entire town, particularly mm. a very young Keanu Reeves. And that's mm. another one of those movies that's really emotionally mm. raw. Um, so, yeah, I just... Would you like, text me that as a reminder? Oh, sure. I want to watch that. Um, yeah, there was a kid in my town who killed himself. Oh. 
I lived in a, I grew up in a small town, and he killed himself with a twenty-two rifle right quite near my house. Oh my gosh! And um, and now that we're talking, uh, it really confused and uh, and. And again, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Right. I just just worried. And I went to that place in the woods where he did it or allegedly did it. And hmm. look, wow. But you know, you blow my mind. I, there's one movie I saw and that I could watch. I've watched it 10 times now. And every time I have the same feeling and I'm thinking, can it last? Will it ever get boring and so far no and it's a movie that nobody's ever seen it's called performance with mick jagger is that you know rogues movie yeah, yeah 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 no i've seen it i haven't seen it in a very long time but i should i should give that another look for sure and here's why i think that i'm uh i'm privately so attached to it is because i saw it at a time where i was i must my heart chakra or whatever it is must have been super open because um, I have the same intense feeling every time I see the movie. And uh, I remember the sound of the leather jacket of the guy sitting next to me squirming. Because the movie's very squirmy, right? And uh, you know what I mean? Right. I remember, yeah. every, you know, I remember, I remember the first time I saw it. It's fascinating. It doesn't happen with every movie, though, does it, Jim? No, it doesn't. I, it, it's funny because, like, I think of... Um having a really uh, powerful reaction to another Nicholas Rogue movie, Walkabout, because that's, that's an intense movie, for sure. To, for I felt to... physically sick yeah. when I saw that movie. I, I was, remember standing on the street. I know exactly what movie theater in New York City. And I stood there. I felt physically sick. And I don't drink much. I needed to get drunk, so I went into the, a bar next to the theater and drank so I could calm down. Oh, Isn't that amazing? And I don't know what was wrong with my head, but I didn't get what was going on. I didn't get that it was a psychic thing. Do you mm. know what I mean? Yeah. It's quite clear in the movie, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's totally psychological, and it plays on this deeper level. Yeah, you made just an intelligent and well-made film with a lot a lot of vital things to say and you know it's it's i think it would be even more resonant today i know a lot of people go well maybe it's a little dated and you know there's some elements of it that wouldn't hold up but i personally think in this day and age we could use we could use hard harry again <laughs> mm, thank I mean, you if, yeah even if we just got a blu-ray release of it or something because it's you know it's easy to see that even Christian Slater recently on the TV show Mr. Robot have you seen that mm. at all? No, I haven't. Tell me. Yeah, he, Christian Slater's playing a character on Mr. Robot who has these really intense speeches sometimes about what's going on psychologically within this character, but at the mm. same time, it's not something I can openly talk about too much because it would involve a spoiler. So I can't okay. like, necessarily reveal a lot about this particular character. However, even the director, the creator of this show, um, I actually tweeted to him, hey, was this thing that you just did in this last episode, was that a nod to pump up the volume? And he tweeted back at me and goes, yes. <laughs> wow. So 
it's sort of infused a little bit into the popular consciousness to some degree. I think if if a, a you know a, a well-known show like Mr. Robot can not only cast Christian Slater but have an element of his previous work infused into mm. the character. So, I don't know. You I'm, know what I'm thinking right now, Jim? You know the end when all the little voices come on? Absolutely. Um that's pre that's prescient about podcasting, right? Yeah, I would because, say so. Uh, because it's free. Anyone can do it, right? And anyone can have a voice. It's yeah. kind of beautiful, isn't it? Do you think about it? The film Pump Up the Volume not only changed my life, it actually saved my life. I suffered from severe depression as a teenager, and I was contemplating leaving this world after uh, a number of incidents and feeling socially awkward. Then, in August of 1990, I walked into a mostly empty theater, sat down, and had one of the most cathartic emotional experiences of my life. Um, my teenage brain suddenly transformed from hopeless to hopeful uh, simply by watching the interactions between uh, a pirate radio DJ named Hard Harry as well as his number one fan, soon-to-be love interest, uh, Nora. And I thought to myself, if these two people can connect, if these people exist out there, then maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I can actually try to make friends and not dread going to school. I mean, obviously, high school was still a difficult time like it is for every teenager, but Pump Up the Volume showed me the power of connection through art, filmmaking, acting. And today's guest is one of my favorite actresses based on her uh, body of work throughout her entire career, having worked with an array of talented directors, many of which were female as well. With her earliest work when I discovered her, uh, she just managed to find the perfect balance between cool and, and nerdy and amicable, particularly in, in Nora Ephron's charming film, This Is Your Life. She always lights up the screen in ways that classic movie stars have, and she has worked with so many gifted actors, always brings a welcome presence and a lot of charisma. It is my honor to speak with the immensely gifted Samantha Mathis. Thank you for joining me today. You're making me cry. My God, that's the most extraordinary introduction I think I've ever had. And um, I'm so touched and moved, and um, it just affirms why I do what I do, that you just shared that story, that very intimate and personal story about how Pump of the volume affected you. I mean, that's why I do what I do. 
that's why I fell in love with the art form because I would sit in the dark in a movie theater when I was 12 and somehow feel less alone in the world watching children of a lesser God. Mm, um, yeah. Why? I don't know. I identified with Marley Maitland as woman alone in the world, angry and isolated, but somehow it made me feel less alone to see her, her story. And so thank you for sharing that story with me. That's why I do what I do. I love hearing that. You know, I, I get asked, um, uh, by fans, you know, could there be a sequel? Yeah. Um, and, and I've actually talked to Christian and Sandy Stern about, you know, it'd be really interesting to actually see who Happy Harry Hardon became as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love musing about, you know, what the uh, evolution of these characters would be in 2019 and you know, what their lives would be like and what their kids would be like. And I think you could do a really interesting sequel <laughs> 30 uh, years later. Um, especially in, especially in this political climate currently. I think we need yes. Harry. <laughs> in this political climate and also in this podcast climate. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think... Um, Happy Harry Hardon might have a really radical teenage daughter. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. That's there's there's something there. And for I sure. think Nora could be a badass uh, uh, music executive. Um, anyway, that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other <laughs> podcast or conversation. Yeah, hopefully that that conversation can be had. But um, so so transitioning into another film where music plays a big role. Talk a little bit about working with a legendary director and, of course, a remarkably talented actor that um, you connected with strongly and remains also one of my favorite actors of all time in The Thing Called Love. Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, I wish I could go back and relive the experiences that I had as a young actress because... While I knew who Peter was and I saw the last picture show, mm. the, uh, my adult self would have a very different experience going back and, and, and working with him. I was so blessed to work with extraordinary people at a very young age. And um, Peter also changed my life. Um, and his passion for cinema, his deep um, understanding of the history of cinema and filmmakers was just extraordinary just to, to be in his company. Um, the first AD, the first assistant director would have to basically beg us to, to come back to set or get up our director's chairs and stop talking because River and I would just practically sit at Peter's feet and, and listen to his stories about, you know, John Ford and 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 Howard Hawks and and uh, and you know all these incredible filmmakers that that he knew because he he created the uh, film department at the Modern Museum of New York um, and and befriended all of you know Hitchcock and 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 wow. Cassavetes and 
so it was just an extraordinary experience to be in his presence and then to work with him. Um, Peter loved to do masters, masters being one take mm. that everything happened in without doing coverage. He loved to do that. And I learned to love that. It is much harder to do. Um, and you don't want to do it all the time, but it's like being on a tight wire. Everything has to come into, everything has to be in synchronicity. And as an actor, it is the most exciting thing to, uh, you know, have to bring it all the way through a three page scene with everybody else, with the camera and the lighting and the other actors. Um, and it's very exciting as an actor. And I think he knew, well, I know he knew that as a, as a viewer, it's really exciting to, to watch that as opposed to, you know, cutting and going into a medium shot and then yeah. a tight close up. you know, there's a time and a place for all that, but, but, um, he, you know, he's a master filmmaker. So it, he, he taught me a lot. Yeah. And it's, it's clear that he, yeah, he, he likes to treat it almost each scene and, each individual moment as a play and let everything play out in wider master shots. That's, that's really a, a nice touch that we don't get to experience because like you said, everything's kind of over edited and I, I just, yeah, I, I really, really responded to that film too, because I was an aspiring musician and not necessarily of the same genre, but I was definitely going to like coffee shops and playing open mics and things like that. Um, and, mm. you know, definitely, definitely responded very much so. I mean, it, it, what can you say about, you know, River Phoenix that hasn't already been said, but, you know, um, seeing things like Stand By Me and then my own private Idaho, it was just like, this this is my guy. And, you know, to work with him, yeah. you know, it's, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. <laughs> I, it's just, you know, it gives me... I mean, I've been a fan of his work, yeah. And so to be to be with him on set um, and to act with him, he deeply challenged me as an actress, mm. and he made me a better actress. Um, he didn't know how to lie on camera. Yeah. He um, he demanded. Um, that you'd be present and alive and in the moment, which was terrifying for me um, and made me a better actress. I learned a lot from River. Welcome to Soundtrack of Your Life, Episode 4. This is a podcast where I invite a guest on, and they have pre-selected 
a soundtrack that represents a memorable time in their life. Uh, and we use that as a jumping off point to talk about the movie, talk about the soundtrack and the music itself, and we talk about personal stories. Uh, we are not going to be slaves to any of these songs, but we try to stick to the format, and you'll be hearing them play underneath it as we go. Uh, joining me today, oh, I'm Corey Pierce. I always forget to introduce myself. Did I already introduce myself or not? I can <laughs> no, edit not that yet. out if I necessarily have to. Uh, joining me today is Mr. Jim Lazowski from Grand Rapids, Michigan. How are you doing, Jim? Oh, couldn't be better, Corey. It's an honor to be joining you. Huge fan of your many insights into film and music, too. Oh, thank you. Um, we have kind of uh, interacted many times online. Um mm-hmm. I think we kind of have a shared affinity towards films with kind of a strong emotional content. Um, oh, yeah. And it's kind of funny that it, it's going to kind of uh, work into today's uh, episode as well, because um, I've read articles about the, your selection that we're going to get to momentarily that kind of talks about it as a, a therapeutic film. Well, I have chosen the soundtrack for a very monumental film for me and it's called pump up the volume which is not the greatest title in the world (laughs) for a movie that really changed my life when i first saw it because um i mean there's so many reasons we can get into throughout the course of the episode but i um every time and even as i've grown over the years and i watch it maybe almost once a year at this point i still feel you know really connected to just not only just like how emotionally resonant it's been for me over the years, but um, it, it seems to have said volumes, no pun intended, about uh, you know people who kind of feel socially awkward and then find their voice. And you know, I've mentioned this uh, when I appeared on the Cinecast and talking about it, is that it sort of became this precursor to podcasting, where you know a lot of people who not you know some people are obviously very good at you know, socially communicating and have no qualms with, you know, reaching out to random strangers and just trying to spark up a conversation. But that's always been a struggle for me. And when I saw this movie, it sort of um, kind of, you know, clicked with me in talking about even if you're an introvert, you can still connect with people. And this, his format, just sitting in front of a microphone and sort of like venting and thinking like, oh, no one's going to hear this, but I'm still getting something out of just getting all this off my chest. Uh, that format, that the way he like basically just talks openly, because you know you're at a time when you're feeling really confused and unsure of yourself and not able to communicate your feelings, and here he is doing it so effortlessly in a way, like just without abandon. And I remember thinking at the time, this this movie is speaking to me in a way that probably rebel without a cause did for a lot of people of that generation um and when i started like recommending this to a lot of my friends who were either going through tough times or you know struggling in some way or another they like actually um came to me and you know expressed how similarly they felt too in terms of this movie really um has some sort of power that I never felt before. And, you know, it's, it's, I will admit that it's got cheesy elements and it's dated and it's certainly got scenes where I'm like rolling my eyes. Uh, if, if you want to look at it from a critical standpoint, but just the effect it had on me at that age 
Um, there's no denying the power of that. Well, there are certain things when they kind of uh, reach you emotionally like that. You could just, um, if you have like a certain sense of integrity, you just can't turn your back on them. I think on the first episode, I was t- talking with Andrew that way about how I felt about corn in the mid-90s. <laughs> and just kind of like, uh, uh, there's just something like someone that's just kind of emotionally just throwing themselves at you. And if you've connected to it once, you're kind of connected to it forever. I mean, it's just kind of hard to really throw that away when it maybe works you felt you. Maybe you felt like a freak on a leash. Maybe. You know? Yeah, Feeling like possible. I have no relief. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so anyways... Uh, Empire Records, directed by Alan Moyle, uh, a Canadian, a Canadian, who has also directed uh, New Water for a Girl, which is kind of a East Coast kind of thing for Canadians here. And for me, Empire fucking Records. Um, Empire Records for me is, I, I love Empire Records to death. I, I own the fan remix edition that has a few of the wrong, wrong takes for Rex Manning. As far as I'm concerned, they get rid of his fade away line, but. Uh, um, He's a director that makes these films that have all these elements of actual kind of angst and serious things going on and people cutting themselves and taking pills. But as a whole, the film kind of also has an error that it's none of it was ever serious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And both of them have really, really energetic soundtracks full of music that's kind of forgotten. <laughs> I mean, or not important, <laughs> I should say. I mean, they're both music-heavy films, but um, and in the case of uh, Pump Up the Volume, a lot of the more noteworthy songs from the movie aren't on the soundtrack. I know, and that's frustrating for um, me. So I thought maybe we'd kind of go over what a few of those were. I, I might even pump one or two of them uh, underneath this as we're talking about this. Uh, the most, um, leading up to the most important one, um, first of all, was not was his uh, dad. I'm in jail, which is oh, a really really fun uh, piece of music. Is not on the album. Uh, Fast Lane by Urban Dance Squad uh, is not on the album. Uh, Wiener Schnitzel, like the three second song <laughs> by The Descendants. <laughs> Welcome to the Wiener Schnitzel. May I take your order, please? Yeah, I want. You want Bill Sperm with that? Yeah. There's room for that song on the album, guys. Of course guys. there is. I but don't know why they couldn't get rights to get some on the of the album. songs. Uh, Love Comes in Spurts by Richard Hell is not on the album. Uh, there is a, and a Beastie Boys song, um, The Scenario, which was not released off of uh, License to Ill because it was too controversial. And is specifically called out in the film as like a special, I got a treat for you guys kind of song. Not yeah. on the album. Um he loves but, being the rap king of Arizona. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't know who the rap king of Arizona is now. Um, no, I don't either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think most of the bands that live in Arizona now are kind of, you got Maynard James Keenan and Megadeth and pretty much every kind of antisocial musician in the world is in Arizona at this point. Yeah, yeah Alice Cooper, etc. Um, yeah, but sure James Keenan is like more focused on wine these days. I don't know if he's making as much music as he used to. Yeah, but um, he does. But uh, the most important track that is missing off the soundtrack is the Leonard Cohen version of "Everybody Knows." Um, yeah, that's weird to me that this is not on the soundtrack. But I mean, even if it be your will, like I, I mean, that comes at a very pivotal point where he is questioning, you know, what he's doing. And there's just like the Leonard. Co- I've never heard Leonard Cohen up until like my my dad had the most amazing record collection, and. This was my first exposure to Leonard Cohen, which is crazy to think about now because I'm such a huge fan of his. Yeah. Um, and even in, like, I, I, oddly enough, our next uh, director for Directors Club is going to be Oliver Stone. 
And uh, like some of the, some of the soundtrack choices for something like Natural Born Killers are pretty audacious, and yeah. you know the use of Leonard Cohen in that is pretty memorable and as well. Not the only artist from this soundtrack that Oliver Stone has tapped into. So I'm going to right. actually use this since we're talking about it as our turning point to sync up and uh, get going. So if you've got your iPod handy, uh, I've got mine, and I'm going to count us down. Are you ready to go? Absolutely. In five. Four, three, two, one. All right. So All right. the first track on the album is Everybody Knows, but it is a cover of Everybody Knows by Concrete Blonde, who are most, I think, well-known for their song Joey. Yes, a song that I am actually a huge fan of. Yeah. Um, you know, even um, this they put out an album, I think that same year, called Bloodletting, that uh, I, I really dug. It's you know I, mean, I I think it's mainly the the lead vocalist. Uh, I think her name is Jeanette or Jeanette or something. But I I just I, I remember she's got a powerful voice and yeah. I, I really really dug their. I mean it's a basic sort of alternative kind of style and maybe they were influenced by stuff like Roxy music and things like that. But. I really like this cover. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a completely different yes. take on everybody knows, but um, this version plays late in the film when he's rallying up the, uh, the vehicle to sort of uh, avoid being triangulated for a signal. Um, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the song, but listening to it repeatedly, I kind of liked it more. Um, uh, I think this kind of era of music, like the late eighties and early nineties, you kind of had a big string of, um, uh, female singers with like kind of the raspy voices mm-hmm, yeah, with the, this sure. and uh, Melissa Etheridge and uh, Taylor Dane who my grade oh, six uh, my grade six um, gym teacher would not stop talking about every day um, oh now this song gets played so often in the film that you kind of have to think about what the song really means like it's got to mean something to him for it to be his his uh, theme song and um, what would you say to, that you take out of it yeah, I think, you know, he just, he sort of identifies, I don't know if it's necessary, I mean, Leonard Cohen was definitely critiquing society in that song, and, um, you know, a, a lot of the film itself is sort of fueled by just um, questioning authority, questioning who we are and why we are the way we are, and like Leonard Cohen's lyrics and pretty much everything he's ever done. I almost think Trump's Bob Dylan and I know that's a bold statement, but uh, he does it in a very subtle way. He doesn't always use metaphor and stuff like that. He just, you know, just even, I mean, he, cause obviously pump up the volume is not about classism or anything yeah. like the poor stay poor, the rich get rich, but it's just really feeling oppressed and you know obviously the situation going on at the school but even just being a teenager in that mentality you just feel lost and oppressed and you have no you have no agency at that point yeah you're pretty much dictated by your teachers and your parents and you really have no say and i think the song sort of captures that as well yeah um funny enough there's like a character that says later in the film i guess nobody knows huh Um, Anyways, uh, do you feel overall, though, that perhaps Leonard Cohen, awesome as he is, is a crutch for death? Ooh. (laughs) And I say this as, like, you and I both love Take This Waltz, but we know that how that song is definitely 
heavy pull there and obviously other tracks um, that he's done have really been that way as well Um, I think there's kind of like a an inherent kind of assumed poetry and kind of grimness to it that is kind of immediately like established once you hear his voice and um, when I hear the song I'm kind of hearing kind of his grim message and uh, there's that point in the song where he's talking about um, the woman that's cheating on him Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of wonder if he wrote it to sort of intend to sort of lead up to that. Like, of course you're cheating on me. <laughs> or, uh, like, like everybody knows that you're cheating on me. Or if it's meant to be, like, directed to one person as if it's still a secret. But Yeah, it's weird because, sure. it becomes, it becomes, it starts out as, like, a macro-level critique. And then it becomes more micro-level about a particular person. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um... I mean, it's it. I th- I think like when I, you know, even just in context with with the film too is when the song "If It Be Your Will" plays, like just the lyrics are speaking directly to what his frame of mind is at that time. Like, if it be your will that I speak no more, when he's questioning whether if he should continue on as Hard Harry, speaking to all the, you know, all his peers and everything. But you know, this song sort of plays. I, and it's also, you know, he, they don't play, like, the entire song in the film. They pretty yeah. much just play, like, the first couple of verses and stuff. It was only on this rewatch that I recognized that, you know, Happy Harry Hardon and Hubert H. Humphrey. Yeah. That's got to be a coincidence. Um, now, we're also on here now uh, to the next song as we get to Ivan mm-hmm. Neville's Why Can't I Fall in Love. A song that, to me, sounds like a prototype for what TV on the radio would become, to be honest. Ooh, okay. Yeah, especially vocally. I can see that for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think they could definitely cover this, and it would very naturally be them. This is the son of Aaron Neville, you know, Cocoa Butter. But, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think he went on to become Rolling Stones' uh, keyboardist for a good long period of time. Like, he's still putting out music, and he's considered, like, uh, important and... Uh, there's a lot of hype about uh, a cover he did of Fortunate of Sun from uh, when after Hurricane Katrina, which got a lot of playback. Oh, then. wow. Okay. I didn't um, know that. Hmm. Now, this song plays during their uh, sex scene. Now, um, I'm going to put it up to you. Do you want to kind of talk about that scene, or do I? This is the point where I kind of ask where you are in 1990 and and what's what's hitting you about this this movie specifically, like deeply. Well, it's tough to yeah say because like I know I have commentary on that scene because like when i was when i was younger i was like oh my god she's naked but i mean (laughs) now uh as an adult i'm like i'm focused on the fact that she's being openly vulnerable with him in that scene and i find that really beautiful as opposed to like oh my god it's a naked girl cool um you know it's because i i think it's because you're sort of taken aback and an interesting um, side note to my first viewing of this movie in practically an empty theater in 1990 was that I saw this with my mom. Ooh. And, um... Are yeah. you digging deep into your seat in that moment? Or? Yeah, well, not necessarily that. It's just the, the, the simulated masturbation that Christian <laughs> Slater does. Yeah. Um, you know, and even after the movie was over, it was like, my mom was like, I don't like this movie because he was masturbating and it was you know it was just kind of explicit and ridiculous um but I, I i mean i told my mom at the time but you have to look past this the little things like that and you sort of have to focus on what he's trying to say about disillusioned youth and stuff like that but um yeah and i mean i i, I really think the scene because i i remember like even when i was young i was like this scene is going on forever while this song plays and i was kind of getting restless because <laughs> i loved 
so much about the movie except this one scene. And now I kind of look at it as like, you know, this 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 girl, you could sort of like write it off as like, well, she's sort of like playing to that manic pixie dream girl kind of trope that, you know, has gotten kind of annoying at this point. Well, she's um, kind of really imposing herself upon him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, she's, you know, a lot of a lot of people say like, oh, that that, that trope in and of itself is like, well, that guy is depressed. He's introverted. But look out. Here comes this amazing manic extroverted girl is going to like open up and, you know, save the guy and stuff with bad um, teenage poetry. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's funny, like, you know, this, you know, seeing this at an impressionable age of uh, 12, um, I, I was instantly smitten with this girl because yeah. like. Uh, I've always sort of maintained to some degree or another, it's sort of changed as I've gotten older, but I've, early on I was, I was saying, like, I think people are attracted to qualities that they wish they had. Okay. Because you've written and, before that you thought Samantha Mathis was your ideal girlfriend. Yes. So that's kind of <laughs> a little bit at odds with what you just said, so. Yeah, no, I mean, but that's that's just it. It's like, when I when I think back to, like, my instant reaction, I was like, yeah, I would totally want to date this girl, um, because she has qualities that I wish I had. And he even says that at one point in the movie, I wish I could be as fearless as you. Um, and so, like, that scene sort of plays differently to me now than when I first saw it, and I, I actually really like it more. But I don't, I mean, the song is okay. It's nothing, I think, as we brought up in the very beginning, you could have cut a lot of song, like, maybe three or four songs out of the soundtrack and replace them with a little bit more of the more experimental or interesting songs or some, you know, like the ice tea song or whatever. Yeah. Just to, just to make, just to vary it up and focus on sort of the anarchist nature, uh, you know, that, uh, hard Harry kind of possesses throughout the movie. And I love that he connects, you know, all, I mean, as much as he's so great at talking into a microphone, he, he finds these really interesting songs that sort of speak to the generation at the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, this movie really just encapsulated, like, um, a specific moment involving a suicide because, you know, I, I had no idea at the time what depression was. I had no idea, like, what I was feeling is sort of, you know, something that can be neurobiologically explained because I you know hadn't read books there was no internet and doctors didn't necessarily hone in on like oh this you know this kid is depressed or whatever um, oh you know because they always wind up saying that uh, you know oh teenagers just going through a phase or whatever but no I was clinically depressed I just didn't know it at the time and seeing this movie and you know um, struggling at the time with like suicidal ideation, uh, the fact that like a character goes through very similar things that I was thinking at the time, and you know Christian Slater as a character is basically trying to play therapist. Yeah. But you know that. And there is literally a character in the film that is calling in because he's on the verge of suicide. Yeah. Which exactly. ultimately turns out. So. Uh, right. And I, I, I mean, to, to me, like it, it was the first experience of. Uh, watching a movie as catharsis which you know I mean when you're 12 years old that's kind of intense <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and you know like there's this one monologue he says is like well you know 
you're supposed to figure out what you want to do for the rest of your life when you're in high school, and you're supposed to figure out what kind of uh, you know person you're going to be attracted to, and maybe eventually would want to marry, and all these thoughts are swirling around in your head, and you can't necessarily figure it all out because yeah. you get to figure yourself out. And being and I, young is sometimes less fun than being dead. Yeah. <laughs> and hearing that, like, just directly spoken, whether, you know, it's preachy or not, um, it just, it just, everything I needed to hear yeah. didn't come from a guidance counselor. It came from this movie. Yeah. When you're in, when you're a teenager, you have a lot of intense thoughts and everything comes across as very profound um, these same things that you might hear 10 years later and you might still relate to, but if you said them yourself, you'd feel like an idiot for saying it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, now, I think it's funny we're talking about something so intense over Liquid Jesus' stand, which sounds yeah. like a, a horrible TV show theme that just kind of goes gets out of control. Uh, this is like a Sly in the Family Stone cover. It plays over the end credits. Uh, it's like a bit of punk, country, blues, um, funk mm-hmm. music. And there's like this weird lyric in the middle of the song. It's like, there's a midget that's standing tall. <laughs> I don't think you can uh, sing about midgets and people still take you seriously. Um, yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like after like the ending of this movie is a little bit cheesy when you hear like everybody's voices. Like, hey, dude, are you out there, man? Like, this is my voice and I'm talking to you, man. And then you hear this song. Yeah. It's like, stand! In the evening, it's just like, oh. Uh. about wraps things up for this bonus episode on the movie that changed my life or saved my life as i've said a couple of times in those interviews those were interviews with alan moyle samantha mathis and a podcast excerpt featuring Corey pierce from the show the soundtrack of your life all will be linked in the show notes hopefully all those links are valid and please visit directorsclubpodcast.com send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com Oh, and visit the Now Playing Network over at nowplayingnetwork.net and stay tuned for the next episode on the great Jane Campion featuring Mariah Gates and Ryan McNeil. Take care, everyone. Be safe. You've been sitting much too long. There's a permanent crease in your right and wrong. Stand. There's a midget standing tall. And the giant. Beside him about the fall.